Welcome to the Freeman Law Project, a podcast with thought-provoking insights on tax and white-collar matters, the art of trial lawyering, and the most influential legal issues of the day. Brought to you by some of the nation's top legal minds. And now, your host. Welcome to another episode of the Freeman Law Project. Um, today's an exciting, uh, interesting, interesting topic. I have one of our firm's attorneys, our, our newest attorney to join us, is Greg Mitchell. Greg, thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Jason. You know, so Greg has an interesting practice, um, and we are going to talk primarily bankruptcy today. Um, but just by way of uh, introduction, um, you know, I met Greg and I met last year, sort of by happenstance. We had a a mutual client, and we both ended up uh, trying a pretty interesting case together in bankruptcy court last. Uh, what was it? Last August. Um, yeah, that that sounds right. Yep. Which we uh, which we won, by the way. <laughs> um, and, um, and, uh, but at any rate, I think, uh, we, we recognize sitting there at council's table, uh, we had a number of, we had a number of things in common in terms of practice overlap. And, uh, um, as, as the chips fell out over the, the next few months, we, we were able to kind of, you know, make, get everything lined up and, uh, and join forces. And so I'm, I'm really glad to have, you know, I have Greg here with us today to uh, share some of his knowledge about, you know, the bankruptcy practice. But Greg, before we, you know, dive into all of these bankruptcy details, why don't you tell us a little bit about your, your background and the type of work you do? I will do that. Uh, before I get too far into it, I will, I will uh, throw out that, uh, that we won primarily based on your litigation skills, but uh, but I helped out on the bankruptcy side, so it, it was a good. It was a good team effort. But uh, we'll go with that. <laughs> <laughs> um, I've been practicing practicing for just about twenty five years now. I got my law degree from SMU in Dallas, um, and then got my LLM in tax uh, from NYU in New York. Um, when I came back to Dallas from the LLM program, I started my legal career out at American Airlines, with uh, where I learned all about taxes in the airlines. Uh, I quickly went to uh, to work for a big accounting firm. Uh, I worked at Price Waterhouse, uh, where my practice took a turn into the state and local tax area, and then into some systems related to state and local tax. And for many years, I traveled around the country uh, working on some systems implementations for tax systems. So finally got tired of traveling, went out on my own around 2004, my practice evolved over the years so that at this point, even though I still do a good bit of tax work, my, my practice primarily focuses on bankruptcy work. And uh, I've operated my own practice now for about 15 years. Um, well, I did uh, up until just a few months ago when, uh, when we joined forces. And uh, ironically, you know, your firm uh, that is primarily a tax firm. And so we've got a lot of that, that background, but, uh, um, Looks like you were looking to expand in the bankruptcy area and, and my background in tax uh, hopefully has made it a good fit and will do so in the, in the future. I found it that you have a unique set of skills because you, you downplay a bit your, uh, your expertise actually in the tax area. 
you know, I have, uh, I've taught tax law at, at SMU's uh, Dedman School of Law for a number of years now. You actually run the SMU tax clinic. How has that uh, been? I, I do indeed. I just, uh, I just started that last semester, uh, which has been quite interesting in the, uh, in the, the new COVID-19 world where we uh, pretty much had to go completely virtual about, uh, you know, a little over halfway into the semester. But uh, um, nevertheless, yes, I, I do have a lot of tax background and, and it's because of that that they were even interested in me and that I was interested in the position. Um, it's a it's a position that I enjoy because it, it gives back a little bit. Our our clients at the tax clinic are um, typically low income um, clients that have uh, unique tax issues that uh, make good cases for students to to get an education, and I kind of guide that education, and uh, I've really enjoyed that. So it, it allows me to keep my foot in the tax world. Um, but now that I'm working for you guys, uh, I, that won't be an issue. You, uh, you mentioned uh, COVID-19 or coronavirus uh, epidemic in the weird last few months that we've all been, uh, we've all been part of. And you know, that, that strikes me, that's a particularly good tie-in, I think, to the bankruptcy topic. Um, because you know you look at it and just given the financial struggles that you know we are seeing you know we're seeing clients we're seeing everyone out there in the economy going through particularly small businesses um, you know one of the things that uh, it doesn't take a rocket science to figure out is you know there there may be a, an uptick in in the need for bankruptcy or insolvency protections um, what, what can you tell us about, you know, when should people or businesses be considering filing bankruptcy? Well, it, the answer is kind of a, you know, a very definitive, it, it depends. I guess starting kind of with individual consumers, you know, if a, if a foreclosure on a house is imminent, then you know, the answer is obvious. Bankruptcy can halt foreclosures. Um, most of the federally backed mortgages uh, have mortgage companies have suspended foreclosures, um, but that's not going to last, you know, for much longer. And, and of course, private mortgage companies weren't subject to the same rules, um, so it's not entirely clear when those um, uh, what the rules will be once the foreclosures are are no longer suspended. But uh, um, anyway, so a, an imminent foreclosure is one clear sign that it's time. Uh, if, for example, your car lender threatens reposition, repossession, that may be a trigger. Keep in mind that in the case of a car, you can actually get your car back even after a repossession if you act quickly and file. There's uh, a lot of vehicle lenders out there that are shocked to find out that, uh, that they have to give a validly repossessed vehicle back. And even worse, if they don't do it pretty quickly, they can be subject to sanctions and attorney's fees for refusing, for refusing to do so. So, I guess it, moving on to other kinds of debt, if you only have unsecured debt like credit cards or medical debt, then you have more options. In that situation, there's no absolute requirement to file bankruptcy immediately. And, you know, if you have no assets, then the worst thing the creditor can do is get a judgment and maybe call you day and night. But, you know, for some people, the, the nonstop calls is enough. For other people, the triggers a lawsuit filed by a creditor. Um, I would tell you that 
I would file long before I have to dip into ret retirement savings. And there's several reasons for that. I mean, first of all, the obvious, you're giving up, you know, money that you've put away for retirement. Um, but second, you're effectively converting what was once an exempt asset, those retirement funds, uh, into a non-exempt asset, cash in the bank. Um, and finally, you know, third, because you're then incurring a non-dischargeable tax when you take that money out of a retirement account. You know, pulling money out of retirement early generally penalty, triggers a penalty tax, and taxes are much more difficult to discharge in bankruptcy. Um, there also may be scenarios where it makes sense to wait because of certain bankruptcy rules, um, maybe some purchases you've made uh, within the last 90 days, maybe you're about to receive a tax refund. Um, there could be other situations where waiting um, could lead to a tax becoming dischargeable. Um, so that's kind of consumer analysis. For businesses, the answer can be even more complex with a, a variety of factors, but the general analysis is the same, and that, that focuses on, you know, what assets are at risk and what urgencies are there. So, for example, let's say you're a restaurant and you've got monthly rent of $20,000 that you hadn't been able to pay because of the pandemic because uh, people aren't eating out. Then, you know, if your landlord's not willing to work with you and is about to start or has started eviction proceedings, then that may be the time to file. Uh, business may also have secured loans out there where the lender is getting ready to foreclose on the collateral for those loans. And uh, maybe a lender has a lien on the machinery and equipment you use in your business, you know, that you can't operate without. That may be a trigger point. If you don't have any urgencies, then you can better plan for what your goals are in bankruptcy, you know, goals other than simply preventing the loss of a major asset. So uh, I've rambled on a little bit. I apologize for that, but that kind of a, a big picture kind of breakdown between consumers and businesses. Yeah, well, relevant considerations, I mean, in this day and age, and, uh, you know, I, I think you're going to be seeing, I guess you already are, but seeing a lot of people, you know, facing some of those, some of those factors or, or life circumstances and looking at this. So one thing that's, you know, of particular interest to me, you talk some about tax debt. Um, can you, Tell us a little bit about when can tax debt be discharged in bankruptcy? So generally, um, tax debt can only be discharged if, if it's old enough. And for the benefit of anyone listening, I, I want to, I'll back up and, and not assume that everyone knows what a discharge is. A discharge is kind of the primary goal of a consumer bankruptcy case. When an individual files and completes a chapter seven bankruptcy case, they get a discharge and that discharge acts as a, an injunction, um, a prevention against former creditors from ever being able to force you to pay that debt. They can't call you, they can't sue you. Now, of course, there are no rules to prevent you from paying back any debt, but the, the discharge makes it to where you legally are no longer required to pay back those debts that are eligible for a discharge. Which brings me back to the, you know, the issue of the dischargeability of taxes. Taxes are only eligible for a discharge after they're more than three years old. And that three years is determined from the time when the tax return for the year in question is filed up to the date that you file for bankruptcy. So let's say you filed for, you filed your 2017 tax return when it was due on April the 15th of 2018. If you filed bankruptcy today in, in 2020, your 2017 tax debt is not dischargeable because it hasn't been more than three years since the day you filed that return. Now go back one year, let's say you filed your 2016 tax return 
when it was due on April the 15th of 2017. If you file bankruptcy today, you are now more than three years separated from the filing of that return. And therefore the 2016 tax debt is now eligible for discharge. A um, couple of other quick points about these rules. It's important that you look at the date that the return was actually filed. If, for example, instead of filing your 2016 tax return on April the 15th of 2017, you filed for an extension and then you didn't file it until you didn't actually file it until October the 15th of 2017. Um, in that case, if you file bankruptcy today in, in June of, 2000, of 2020, it now has not been a full three years. So there's some, there's a few other, what I call traps for the unwary, but that's the general framework for the, the dischargeability of taxes. Um, so Greg, I think you, we talked a little bit about, you know, chapter seven uh, bankruptcy filings and the, and the various, you know, chapters that one can file under, and it's all a kind of a confusing mess to, to the uninitiated. <laughs> yeah. um, can you tell me a little bit about, you know, or the listeners a little bit about the different chapters of bankruptcy and, you know, where each one might be particularly useful? Sure. I'll, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, I'll do my best. Chapters of bankruptcy, you know, once again, I'll, I'll break it down between consumers and businesses. Um, consumers generally have the option of filing either a chapter seven or a chapter 13. An individual can file a chapter 11, and I'll touch on that, but, but I'll start with the most common options of chapter seven and chapter 13. Chapter seven is what we call a complete liquidation, and it provides the most benefit for those with large amounts of unsecured debt. I typically tell people that if you can qualify for chapter seven, then it's usually your best option, and there's two reasons for that. Number one, you get the most complete discharge where you don't have to pay any of those unsecured debts back. And number two, it's the quickest. A chapter seven case typically spans about three to four months, after which you walk away with a discharge. Unlike a business that we'll talk about in a minute, individuals actually get to keep most of the property that, that people normally have, your house, your car, your personal belongings, including you know, household goods, furniture, your clothes, your jewelry. Um, I mentioned earlier, you get to keep your retirement accounts. Those are exempt assets. Now there's a cap on some of those items, but most people uh, get to keep everything they own. Common assets that you don't get to keep are things like, you know, boats or a second home or a vacation home. Sometimes cash in a bank account because it's not an exempt asset. But if there's not an immediate urgency to file your bankruptcy case, you can often engage in some, you know, pre-bankruptcy planning that can allow you to deal with cash and bank accounts so that you uh, kind of maximize your exemptions. Um, the other most common alternative for individuals is a chapter 13. We haven't talked about chapter 11 yet, but chapter 13 is basically like a, uh, a chapter 11 for individuals. And what I mean by that is that, you know, like a chapter 11 that I'll talk a little bit more about in a minute, chapter 13 involves creating a, a plan of reorganization that determines what you pay, um, how much you pay, and what debts get paid. Um, chapter 13 plans are a, a lot more what I would describe as cookie cutter than the flexibility provided by chapter 11, but nevertheless, they have their place in the, in the uh, you know, what I call a bankruptcy tool belt, if you will. A, uh, a chapter 13 is typically the appropriate choice when you're trying to save a particular asset, usually your house, maybe a vehicle. 
So what chapter 13 allows you to do that chapter seven does not is to force a mortgage lender to accept a payout of the rearages that you have on your home. So let's say for example, that as a result of uh, COVID-19, you lost your job and you've now missed three mortgage payments. There may be a benefit to filing chapter seven and getting rid of some unsecured debt, but you're not gonna solve the issue of the three missed mortgage payments. If you were to file chapter seven, then you know, you'll emerge from chapter seven with a discharge of unsecured debts, but you'll still be behind on your mortgage. And you know, if you didn't make any payments while you were in chapter seven, you might be six or seven months behind at that point. If instead you file for chapter 13, then you can file a plan and that requires a few, few things. First, you, you must continue to pay your ongoing mortgage payment in a, in a chapter 13, but then you can make payments in your chapter 13 plan that will go towards reducing and ultimately eliminating the arrearage over the term of the plan, which is typically three to five years. Although I, I won't go too far into it, there are sometimes reasons to do both. Let's say you have both scenarios. You have a lot of unsecured debt, um, but there's also several months behind on your mortgage payment. One uh, tool in the tool belt that's, often, that's not often used uh, is what uh, some people refer to as a chapter 20, which uh, refers to a chapter seven filing followed by the immediate filing of a chapter 13 once the chapter seven is over. The chapter seven has the benefit of discharging unsecured debt, again, credit cards, medical debt, that sort of thing. But then after you've gotten rid of the unsecured debt, you may then be in a better position to be able to make payments on the mortgage arrears without having to worry about the unsecured debt, which also must be dealt with in a chapter 13. So chapter seven, chapter 13 are the most common forms of bankruptcy for an individual consumer. Now I'll talk a little bit about the options for businesses. Um, starting again with chapter seven, a business chapter seven is a complete liquidation of the business. The business must immediately discontinue operations and unlike a consumer chapter seven, a business doesn't, doesn't get any exemptions or assets that it gets to keep. Now, if there's nominal assets, a trustee may determine that they are simply gonna abandon what assets are there, and the business owner may end up getting to keep some of those assets. But anything of value is typically gonna be sold by the trustee and those proceeds um, distributed to creditors. Since a business doesn't get a discharge like an individual, many people ask, you know, what's the benefit of doing a chapter seven for a business? And the most common answer is that it generally tends to prevent future litigation. If a, if a business owner decides that they're simply gonna shut down, they do so at the risk of being accused of playing favorites. Let's say they had $25,000 in the bank and they had half a million dollars in debt. You know, what do they do with that $25,000? There may be an inclination to either take it with them or, or maybe to pay debts of either friends or family or maybe of a vendor that they want to go to work for or something like that. When you make those kind of choices, you're subjecting yourself to lawsuit by the creditors that didn't get the benefit of those decisions. If instead a bankruptcy is filed, a trustee is appointed whose job it is to administer what assets there are for the benefit of creditors in a way that's deemed to be fair for all. No one's gonna, you know, is likely to get all of their debt paid, but they are likely to get what is fair based on their status and based on what assets remain. So once a trustee is finally, has fully administered a case, you know, what I think of as a kind of a bankruptcy seal of approval tends to render any uh, future lawsuits uh, against that business owner much less likely. So that's chapter seven. The other chapter that a business may file is probably what uh, 
what the listeners you know hear most about in the news, and that's a chapter 11. A chapter 11 is the chapter of bankruptcy that a business files when it's trying to avoid going out of business. In a chapter 11, the, the debtor proposes a plan of reorganization that it then has to send out to creditors. And in order to get that plan confirmed by a bankruptcy court, there are numerous rules that have to be satisfied. But generally the most important is to obtain certain required votes <clears throat> in favor of the plan. You don't have to get everyone's vote, but you do need support for your plan from the creditors. Usually you can get support from creditors if you can convince them that your plan presents the best opportunity for them to get paid or at least the best opportunity to get the highest percentage of the money that they are owed. And in fact, one of the rules that must be satisfied in order to get a chapter 11 plan confirmed is that creditors must receive at least what they would in a chapter seven. So let's say for example, that if your business completely shuts down and you file for chapter seven, that unsecured creditors would only receive 25% of what they're owed. If you file for chapter 11 and you propose to only pay them 10% of what they're owed, then that plan cannot be confirmed. So there's a lot of other uh, chapter 11 requirements, but that gives you a flavor of how a chapter seven compares to chapter seven. And uh, I know I've rambled on a lot, but I, I mentioned that chapter seven and 13 are the most common for consumers um, and chapter 11 is most commonly used by businesses, but it is possible for an individual to file chapter 11. It's not common because chapter 11 is much more complex and typically much more expensive, uh, but there are scenarios where an individual chapter 11 can make sense. The most common are where an individual doesn't qualify for either chapter, cha chapter seven or chapter 13 because of either the amount of income a debtor makes or the total amount of debt. The bankruptcy code limits the amount of debt an individual consumer can have in a chapter 13. Um, that limitation in the case of unsecured debts is a little over 400,000. In the case of secured debts, that the limit is closer to like 1.3 million. So it's, a, it's an unusual circumstance where someone would fit into that, but there are, there are circumstances out there. Uh, and although it comes with you know, more complexity and expense, a chapter 11 can be tremendously beneficial for the right situation, because as I said, it comes with uh, much greater flexibility. So that's a kind of an overview of the chapters of bankruptcy. Um, hopefully my listeners haven't fallen asleep at this point. <laughs> I, I haven't. This, this is, uh, is actually interesting stuff. Greg, at one point you mentioned that chapter seven, uh, you know, is, is often maybe the best route if you can qualify. Um, what exactly does that mean and how do you qualify for chapter seven? So, um, yeah, so chapter seven has what is, is known as the means test for qualification. And when I talk about the means test, I, I typically describe it as a three-phase analysis. And the analysis is designed to determine whether there is what the bankruptcy code describes as a uh, quote-unquote presumption of abuse. Uh, the first phase looks at the debtor's income. And if it's below a certain number, what we call the mean income, uh, determined by the location where the debtor lives and the number of dependents that the debtor has. Uh, if the income's lower than that mean number, then the debtor automatically qualifies. That's an easy one. <clears throat> the second phase uh, looks at the types of debt that the debtor has compared with the debtor's income. So if, if a debtor makes more than the mean income, we go to this phase, and although it, it, it greatly simplifies the analysis, a debtor is generally rewarded in this analysis by the existence of secured debt. 
Um, so like the first phase, it's a number crunching exercise. And if you pass this second phase, then once again, you automatically qualify for chapter seven. So if you don't automatically qualify on either of the first two phases, then there is this presumption of abuse that takes you to the third phase, which is basically a facts and circumstances analysis. There can be a variety of reasons that you may be a perfectly legitimate debtor, not abusing the system and, and still have a higher level of income than most. So the code then provides you the opportunity to basically explain how your situation is not an abuse. I would point out that if the majority of your debts are business debts, maybe you use your personal credit cards to finance your business, then that standard means test doesn't apply and there's no immediate presumption of abuse. So that's kind of what the means test looks at in a, in a chapter seven. And then um, as I mentioned earlier, if you can qualify, it's usually the best, uh, uh, the best chapter for an individual. Hmm. Well, you, Greg, you also talked about rules that a chapter 11 debtor has to satisfy, you know, in order to get a, get a bankruptcy plan confirmed. What are some of those rules or, or hoops? I guess you've got to, you got to jump through. Sure. There's a, there's quite a few uh, of them and I'm not going to go through every single one of them, but uh, most of the requirements for a chapter 11 plan are found in, in uh, a couple of sections of the bankruptcy code. Um, one of the most common challenges to confirmation of any chapter 11 is the requirement that a class of claims accept the plan. So generally a, a plan of reorganization will create what we call these classes of claims. And this classification is designed to put similarly situated creditors together so that they get a similar treatment, which makes sense from a fairness standpoint. Then with respect to any impaired class, which generally means their rights are altered under the plan, maybe they're, maybe they're receiving less than what they're owed, or maybe they're receiving everything they're owed, but they're receiving it over a longer period of time, than what the original agreement says. So with respect to an impaired class, that class as a whole must accept the plan. So what does that mean? Well, another section of the bankruptcy code defines what acceptance means. A class of claims has accepted a plan if accepted by creditors holding at least two thirds in amount and more than one half in number of the allowed claims. So it's good to get a large number of supporters of your plan, but it's also very important to get the, the creditors with the largest claims to support your plan. Um, so it, there's, this, there's this balancing and, and you have to satisfy both of those um, percentage thresholds. If you can't satisfy that requirement, then the rules require that you be able to show that in spite of not meeting these voting thresholds, that the class of creditors will receive at least as much as they would have in a chapter seven, what we call the so-called liquidation test. Um, other requirements relate to the classification of claims. A, a commonly litigated issue is whether a class of claims is truly different than another class of claims. For example, you might seek to give some sort of preferential treatment in a plan of reorganization to a class of uh, critical vendors, uh, vendors without which you wouldn't be able to operate. Um, they might be unsecured creditors, just like a credit card company, but you want to propose to pay them a higher percentage of their claims so that they'll continue to do business with you after the bankruptcy. But in turn, the credit card companies might not think that's fair. So um, another commonly litigated rule is what we call the absolute priority rule. 
If an impaired class of claims has not accepted the plan, it's still possible to get a plan confirmed if other rules are met. And one of those other rules is that you cannot violate what is called the absolute priority rule. And that rule says that with respect to a class of unsecured claims, the holder of any claim or interest that's junior to that claim can't receive anything under the plan. Now, you may often hear about, you know, where in a bankruptcy, the shareholders, the equity interest, they get wiped out. And that typically occurs because to do otherwise would violate this absolute priority rule. If an impaired class of claims doesn't accept the plan, then the equity holders, which are lower in priority, can't get anything. And if the plan proposes that they do, then it violates the absolute priority rule and can't be confirmed. One interesting aspect of the new uh, subchapter five bankruptcy is that the absolute priority rule does not apply. Um, and I think that's gonna be a, a significant advantage to, to filing these subchapter five bankruptcy cases. Greg, that, that sounds like a, a fairly important deal or, or change. What can, what can you tell me more about subchapter five of chapter 11 bankruptcy? Uh, I will. A, a subchapter um, five, chapter 11 bankruptcy, it's named for where it appears in the bankruptcy code. Um, with, it was recently passed when the Small Business Reorganization Act was signed into law back in August of last year, 2019, and it went into effect in February of this year, 2020. Um, as passed, a subchapter five bankruptcy was limited to small businesses with less than a little over $2.7 million in total debt. However, the CARES Act that was passed in late March of 2020 the same act that a lot of listeners would recognize that provided taxpayers with a, with a stimulus payment of $1,200 per person. Well, that same bill increased the subchapter five bankruptcy cap to $7.5 million for the next year. So much like a chapter 13 case for individuals with regular monthly income, the subchapter 511 bankruptcy allows a debtor to spread its debt over three to five years, during which time the debtor must devote its projected disposable income to paying creditors. Now, in many cases, this model benefits both debtors by allowing them to spread their payments over time and creditors by allowing them a meaningful recovery from debtors who may not have much money on hand, but may still have a realistic expectation of income over time. You know, eventually, we're not there yet, but eventually, COVID-19 is likely to go away. And so, you know, I suspect a lot of these businesses are going to bounce back, but you know, until then, um, they're not going to have a, a lot of money on hand to fund a chapter 11 plan. So unlike a traditional chapter 11 case where administrative expenses must generally be paid at the time the plan gets confirmed under subchapter five, they can be paid over the life of the plan. That's kind of similar to a chapter 13 case where you don't have to pay your attorney's fees up front, which is often difficult. You can pay them out over the term of the plan. Um, the debts in a subchapter five are not discharged until the debtor completes all of their plan payments. Um, in order to keep cases moving quickly, theoretic theoretically conser conserving, you know, in these administrative costs, a chapter, sub I'm stumbling here. <laughs> a, 
I, I told you I was rambling. Um, a subchapter five debtor must normally file its plan of reorganization within 90 days after entering bankruptcy. Now that's a lot quicker than the normal requirement. Um, the bankruptcy code provides that the court may extend this deadline if the need for the extension is attributable to you know, circumstances beyond their control. I would suggest that in this COVID-19 environment, courts are probably likely to grant those kinds of extensions pretty liberally, but a um, couple of other differences. Uh, normally in a chapter 11 case, a trustee is appointed only for cause such as fraud or gross mismanagement of the estate. And if something like that happens in normal cases, a trustee comes in and seizes control of the debtor's operations. Under a subchapter five case, a trustee is automatically appointed, but the debtor retains control of its assets and operations. Um, another difference, creditors committees, common in traditional chapter 11 bankruptcy cases, are formed only for cause in subchapter five cases. And so that, that will be a rarity. Although subchapter five trustees have authority to investigate the debtor's financial affairs, their primary function in a subchapter five is to facilitate a consensual plan among the debtor and its creditors. They're almost like a mediator um, that facilitates a settlement in litigation. The hope is that the involvement of this impartial third party may increase the likelihood of a fair and equitable uh, resolution among the debtor and its creditors and may be particularly useful for a small business whose creditors are unwilling to make reasonable concessions, you know, in light of the impending financial crisis, you know, they've got bills to pay too. So, so understandably they're, uh, you know, they want to get paid. Um, but this, this mediator can often bring the two parties together. And, and finally, it, you know, what I believe to be most importantly, this absolute priority rule that we discussed earlier, a rule that often provides a significant challenge to getting a, a normal chapter 11 plan confirmed does not apply in a chapter, subchapter five case, which means that the, the old owners of the business can remain the owners of the business after the filing of the bankruptcy. And I, I, think, that's, I think that's a real game changer in, in chapter 11 practice. And I think it will, it will provide much better relief to a much wider, um, range of, of small businesses. Whereas, you know, a lot of these small businesses wouldn't have been able to um, either fund a chapter 11 prior to these rules or, uh, or they wouldn't be able to satisfy the absolute priority rule because they want to stay in control. They're small business owners. Um, they still want to have their business when it's all said and done. They don't want, you know, surprise it taken out from other, underneath them. Interesting. That seems like it would have uh, some implications in, you know, one of the areas where I would typically get involved in bankruptcy proceedings dealing with, uh, you know, dealing from the, the tax perspective and preserving tax attributes like net operating losses. And you get into some Section 382 kind of limitations where, you know, I, it, it seems to me that that sort of shift allowing, um, you know, allowing for maintaining ownership structures would have some implications there. Um, Absolutely. Very interesting stuff, Greg. I, I appreciate you uh, appreciate you taking the time to um, kind of impart some of this knowledge on us and our and our listeners. Um, is there anything else we should be you know we we should cover here today, or we need to leave them with? Gosh, I don't know. I, I would I would. Uh you know, encourage people to 
act fast, but don't necessarily rush. Bankruptcy is not um, a cure-all. It's not the, you know, the best solution for everyone. But, uh, but I, would, I would encourage people to include it in their analysis. I mean, it, bankruptcy to a lot of people is a, is a four-letter word that, you know, they swore they were never going to do that. And, you know, they feel some, you know, some sort of, uh, I guess, moral failures when, when, something, when they're faced with something like this. And what I tell people is that, you know, these are laws that were passed by, you know, our, you know, legislative leaders, and they were, they were passed to, to help people that get in financial situations to, um, to work out of it. Ultimately, I view bankruptcy as asset protection, rather than some sort of, uh, you know, personal failure or anything like that. Because, you know, you can, you can, you'd be surprised how much assets, you know, individuals can save um, you file bankruptcy, it, it gives you this breathing time to, you know, get your stuff together. Maybe you lost a job. It may very well be the, the difference in, you know, having to dip into your retirement account, um, to, which triggers all sorts of other problems, tax issues, um, not to mention the fact that, you know, you get to retirement, you've, you've lost your retirement. So don't rush to file bankruptcy, but keep it in the tool belt. Keep it as a as a as a tool for asset protection because it can help. You know, completely agree, Greg. I you know I kind of look at it. I tend to give the same advice. It's it's often the you know kind of the last option, but sometimes it is the right option. Uh, you know, under the circumstances, and uh, you do get that. You know, you do get that feeling. I think from from clients at at points in time where it's you know kind of viewed as a as a moral or economic failure of some sort. And, you know, the way I've kind of looked at it is uh, America is uh, the land of second chances. We love to see comebacks and second chances. Um, and, you know, bank, bank, the bankruptcy system is really set up to do exactly that. And uh, so when someone gets with, you know, that situation gets with someone like you that, that knows what they're doing, knows how to, navigate that system, you know, effectively and efficiently, um, you know, that's what it's all about, second chances. Absolutely. And that's, uh, that's kind of why I enjoy what I, what I do, because, uh, you know, at its core, it can, it can truly help people that are in a, in a tough situation. And, uh, uh, you know, that's, that can be rewarding for sure. Well, Greg, I want to thank you for, uh, for joining us today. And again, discussing bankruptcy. Um, I know you'll be back on in the future to discuss bankruptcy and, and other topics. I um, want to just, you know, wish you continued luck with, with the tax clinic, with the bankruptcy practice, and, um, and, and we look forward to having you back on. Thank you. I want to thank all of our listeners again for, for tuning in. This has been another episode of the Freeman Law Project. I'm your host, Jason Freeman. Again, along with me today was Greg Mitchell. We hope you'll join us next time.